new technology for the steel square. And while nobody owns any, we see exponential growth, meaning the doubling of uses is happening in a certain time interval and not just in linear increases. And that's important because Bitcoin is a new tech and it is exponentially growing right now. And you can see that through a couple of different metrics, like price is one of them um, that has been growing exponentially. But also, like if you look into Google trend data, for instance, and see the search term Bitcoin worldwide, you find an exponential relationship there as well. And all that leads me to believe that Bitcoin right now is growing exponentially in users. And so this is the core assumption behind any of the math that I'm doing. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Arcos Global Advisors or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. In this episode of Navigating Bitcoin's Noise, I'm joined by Yogi to discuss a viral Twitter post where he depicted Bitcoin's adoption price based on its adoption curve. In our discussion, we talk about the importance of understanding S-curves and how new technologies are adopted at an exponential and nonlinear fashion. We talk about regressions and how they can help us figure out where we are today relative to past adoption rates. Additionally, we cover the importance of the average buyer, what price miners have to sell at, and how to justify owning the alternative. If you're looking for a better understanding of Bitcoin's past and its future potential as an economic network, then join us and listen in. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining. I have Yogi with me from Western Europe, who was a biomedical scientist, uh, has since uh, got enthralled with Bitcoin data and put out a great post in May, uh, May 19th on the historical distribution curve of Bitcoin. So, Yogi, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and then we'll jump into what drew you to this distribution curve and what your goals are around uh, looking at Bitcoin in this manner? Sure. Thanks uh, for having me on your podcast. It's the first time for me to uh, speak about this in public. Uh, it's the first time I've been invited on a podcast because I had a tweet blow up that has been seen by 1.1 million people. By the way, it's quite a surreal experience to have that happen if you've never had it before. Wow. Um, well, was congratulations. That's a big feat. Um, yeah, so, I was so. not prepared for that. And it was meant as a, it wasn't even meant for that. Right? It had pretty graphs and all, right? Like uh-huh. uh, I just was uh, playing a little, you know, like with numbers and, and putting it out there and boom, it blew up. Anyway, so we connected and now we're talking about what, what I was on about there. So I'm excited to do this. Yeah, excited to have you on. And I think that's part of what makes Bitcoin and, and kind of the broader community so great is you're just doing something that that you found interest in, you found a passion in, and you post some nice charts which i think have a lot of meaning and a lot of value to them and it's blown up um so why don't you tell us so if i'm looking at this distribution curve i think we all have seen it the bell curve you got tails on the left tails on the right generally most action takes in in between the first two standard deviations and then some smaller amounts in the tails so um maybe you can tell us so in this the initial chart bitcoin is here on the left side of the curve um, to you, that means it's cheap. Um, so maybe you can explain, you know, a little bit about the chart, why you think it's cheap relative to equities, which were on the right-hand side. I think it was the Qs, which maybe were more towards the expensive side. And then 
you can walk us through what led you to that and then why you think one's cheap versus the other expensive and also tell us a little bit about the average that these standard deviations are built off of. Okay, so first of all, in order to understand the plot and the graph and all the stuff that happened there with that, we have to take a couple steps back and explain what this whole thing is based on from a first principles standpoint and, and why I'm looking at it this way through the lens that I'm looking at it, um, because otherwise it just doesn't make much sense, I think. And um, so, the, so the important thing, the most important thing here is that uh, technology, new technologies adopted exponentially. And Bitcoin is a new technology. It is more than just that, of course. Um, but for now, if we view it through the lens of a technology uh, that finds adoption in the marketplace, that's enough for us to understand where, where all this is going and like also what, what those graphs were and what this all was about. So when a new technology comes into um, being, nobody owns it, any of it, it's new after all. And there's a lot of growth potential in the market. Like think about uh, smartphones before the iPhone came around. You had a Nokia or maybe a Blackberry back then. And um, today we've all got smartphones and it's either an Android or an Apple these days. And in between, we've had a while where there was exponential growth for smartphones, right? So first you've got the early adopters and then an early majority that adopts the technology and all the while users are doubling at a regular pace in a regular time frame, until eventually most people have smartphones and the growth stalls out with the ones that came late, the laggards, right? So the adoption of new technology follows the S-curve. And uh, the first time I saw that was when it was posted on Twitter. Um, some guy, I don't, I don't remember who it was, but uh, like, you know, new tech going mainstream always does that. And interestingly enough, if you look back over a long time frame, like a hundred years or so, and you look at all technology, they also did that any technology that comes into the market and reaches saturation follows the same pattern. They all follow the S-curve. And in the beginning of the growth, uh, the S-curve, the growth is exponential, which is why uh, we're looking at this exponentially right now. So that pattern, by the way, if we go back, it held for electricity, it held for fridges, for cars, for TVs, uh, for radios, for personal computers, and for the internet. And most recently, it also held uh, up for smartphones. And so, in recent history, new technology adoption has sped up significantly. If you look at how quickly smartphones were adopted in the 2010s, they reached their total market penetration much more quickly than like the television set did in the 1950s or like the radio, for instance, did before that. Okay, so now a very short summary for now for, for that background because it's so important because everything is based on that. New technology follows the S-curve. And while nobody owns any, we see exponential growth meaning the doubling of users is happening in a certain time interval and not just in linear increases. And that's important because Bitcoin is a new tech and it is exponentially growing right now. And you can see that through a couple of different metrics, like price is one of them um, that has been growing exponentially, but also like if you look into Google trend data, for instance, and see the short the, the search term, the search term Bitcoin worldwide, you find an exponential relationship there as well. And all that leads me to believe that Bitcoin right now is growing exponentially in users. And so this is the core assumption behind any of the math that I'm doing, right? If you disagree with this uh, statement that Bitcoin is growing exponentially, all the rest is coming down the pike. 
doesn't matter anymore. But if you do, if you do agree, then some interesting stuff is gonna come out of this conversation today. And um, so if Bitcoin progresses exponentially into the future, we can use a regression to figure out where we stand today compared to that relative to the exponential trend. And I have done that in the tweet that blew up, uh, showing how that compared to past adoption rates. And um, yeah, it just showed us how Bitcoin is incredibly cheap today. And that's a great summary. Um, and I think that's why when I saw it, I realized, you know, maybe I'm not a big statistician or anything, but I realized a, a bell curve and kind of what that means and what that shows you. Um, my background is traditional markets. Uh, I spent a lot of time in options, which you spend a lot of time in standard deviations and probabilities. Mm. And so when you look at this, it, it was really clear to me. And as you talked about, uh, there is a lot going around on Twitter and on the internet about about the S curve and the adoption. And uh, you spend any time looking back at even just recent history, you see how that adoption affects uh, networks and, and markets. And yeah, you know, that's Peter Thiel's zero to one. I think it was Yuri and Timmer that uh, recently put out uh, the S curve adoption of all those industries that you mentioned, um, or or some of those. Um, you know, interestingly, concrete, I think, was listed on there, rail cars, those things. But those are foundational um, parts of the economies that we're built on and, and houses and buildings and everything that kind of makes our workplaces and lives go. Uh, so concrete is not really a quote unquote technology as you would think about it, but it really is when you get down to it. So that network effect is built in. Um, another thing uh, I just wanted to mention before we kind of get into what that core average is that you're running these standard deviations off of um, was in, in the second part of the tweet or the second um, tweet in the thread uh, you had for reference that 23.5 was two standard deviations <laughs> below where we yeah. were already kind of cheap. And this morning, I think we hit 23.3. So it speaks to the power of the math, the regression and math is a core part of Bitcoin and, you know, lack of math or, or or functioning around math is a core part of what's kind of broken in the monetary system. I'm a technician, uh, do a lot of technical analysis. Most people kind of give it a bad rap because they, you know, oh, just magic lines, you're just drawing lines on a paper. But it really, the support resistance trend levels and all kind of build on that same rate of change, the exponential growth and velocities and, and standard deviations. And so what's interesting to me is, these two levels that you have li listed, the second standard deviation, 23.5, and the third standard deviations of 13.7, directly align with where my lines are on the chart. And they've been there for over a year, year and a half, two years. And they're in the 20s and, and 14, 15K. And um, not saying that that these prices have to go there, they will, but you know, there's even one more lower at 7K. And um, you know, I don't want to see that, but if the math takes us there, it does. If the markets takes it there, they do. And I think that's one of what I love about Bitcoin and just markets that aren't as massaged, aren't as, you know, manipulated for lack of a better term, the psychology of the markets take hold and the math plays out in ways that these levels are predictable. Whereas in markets where you got a lot of players that are kind of gaming the system, so to speak, uh, you lose a lot of that clarity. Uh, things get distorted. Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what goes into the underlying uh, trend that these standard deviations are built off of. Sure, let's, let's do that. So 
the trend is just simply based on an exponential regression. And for that, I'm using Yahoo Finance price data, which starts in 2014. And I'm ignoring everything else before that because it's just not relevant to today. Uh, the market was very tiny back then. Um, you know, like it's a half a trillion dollar asset now, like what, what it does today is completely different from what it did uh, in the early years. So I think, uh, I mean, you might say there's some recency bias here if you do that, but uh, I think that's actually, it's not, it's not subtracting value, I think not. And actually I've done it with the whole price data going back and the answer isn't all that different. So, uh, so I've got a quick question on that. Um, yeah. In my, in my view, you know, there was a narrative of uncorrelated asset. And really, for what I see in the charts, that correlation started in kind of 2018, where there were periods that it was uncorrelated, but for a large part of the time, it was very correlated to equities. So, uh, and, and you've used 2014 data forward because the market was kind of too small. Is that period pre-2014 where you started to get more and more adoption of at least the asset Um does that kind of play into the fact that it probably was uncorrelated because there were, it was so small that a large enough part of the market wasn't paying attention to it? Probably. And you also have to look at that correlation very, very carefully, I think, because uh, over the long time frame, it isn't correlated at all. Right? Like if you compare the NASDAQ and Bitcoin between 2014 and today, and you overlay those two and you normalize the graph, um, so you normalize either, like uh, Bitcoin out, I don't know how much it outperformed, but it's, it's not even close, right? Like completely different, uh, different thing. So short-term correlation, they might move a little together while Wall Street views this as a risk on thing every now and then, right? So, but when Bitcoin moves down uh, and, and the NASDAQ moved down, the magnitudes of those moves, they're not always the same, right? So that, that short-term correlation doesn't hold at all in the long-term. So I view this as a distraction more than anything. Um, not so sure if that answers your question. Yeah, I was just saying that, you know, over these periods, that when you overlay the two over periods, at least since November, and then I went back and looked at, at charts going back, uh, kind of 2018, most mm -hmm. periods look like this where there is high correlation. So you see that this is all correlated. So you got ups and ups, downs and downs, yeah. flats and flats, ups and ups, yeah. flats and flats. Yeah. You know, it's highly correlated. Even here, down is sharper in Bitcoin, but down, flat, up, yeah. flat, down. Um, so that's what I mean by the the correlation. Right. Like the, the narrative is that it's uncorrelated, but when you look at one over the other and you index them it is it may not be like you know one correlation but the correlation is very high mm. um and there's only a handful of periods kind of post adoption uh let's call it 2018 where you have windows where they like one goes one way the other goes the other see and this is the problem see, I have this is, here. See, they, they move together yeah they move together yeah. up and down but when bitcoin moves up it moves much much more and yeah. so what does that correlation really matter? Does it? I don't know. I don't I don't view it that way at all. Well, I like I, distracting. Yeah. So and what I'm saying is the correlation is is like let's forget about the percentage up and down, but it's just are they moving up at the same time and are they moving yeah. down at the same back to the trend? How do you define 
the trend and what are the standard deviations kind of built yeah. around? Okay, so the trend is just simply an exponential regression on the price data. And that's all it is, nothing more, nothing less, because we've discussed how this uh, grows exponentially in terms of adoption, or at least I think it does. And mm -hmm. all the signs are pointing towards it. So I'm just fitting a regression to it. And if you do that, if you fit an exponential regression onto exponential data, you can figure out where you currently are relative to the underlying trend. So I'm doing that with the regression. Um, and then I'm trying to figure out if we are above or if we're below and by how much. And uh, by the way, the regression is not my invention in the first place. It's built on this uh, other guy's work that I was following. Um, he goes by uh, Jeremy1174 on Twitter, and he's helped me a lot, like building the whole thing. Uh, my contribution to this is like plotting the standard deviation graphs and like making making the tweet blow up, I guess. <laughs> but, yeah, well, anyway, it, it, take, it takes both sides. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, anyway, so he, he built the model underlying there. So I'm, I'm not going to go into details how this works and how the math exactly works under the hood because he mm -hmm. asked me to keep that a bit closer to the chase. And uh, if I had known how this is going to blow up, I probably wouldn't have even posted. I'm not sure about that. So um, that, that's pretty much it. So just exponential regression and then see where we stand uh, relating to that. And uh, one, thing, one thing I want to note here, um, I know that the data isn't normally distributed, price data usually isn't. And I know that the math is questionable if you use it to build something on top of it, you know, like uh, it, the way uh, that long-term capital did back in the day, right? I wouldn't use it for mm -hmm. that at all. But I think it's fine to do what I did and use that to calculate the standard deviations to get a feel for how far we are from the underlying trend qualitatively, right? Not quantitatively. It's a simple measure of distance um, and we don't want to quantify anything with that. We just want to say, yeah, okay, this thing is cheap because the uh, predictive power isn't there in the end, right? That's a very good point. Um, if you spent some time in the markets, you know, long-term capital management basically almost blew up the entire financial system because a bunch of really smart guys with, with PhDs and, and mathematical wizards built all these models and, you know, it did not account for uh, market forces. And while math is great and it can give you a very good picture, when you turn math into bots, uh, there's always that risk that if you just blindly put on the trades that the black box says that it works until it doesn't and there's no way to exit uh, when, when the black box breaks or when too many firms are using the same algorithm and one exits early to try to front run everybody else it creates this domino effect of this just pure risk off and a lot of that we're seeing right now so you have all this leverage that has been built up in the system and bitcoin is is the purest asset pristine collateral gold-like thing but when you have all this leverage built up around it and a lot of that is bringing in the rehypothecation and bringing in the you know manipulation that can be done through options and futures and I don't, again, I don't mean that in a derogatory term. That's just how traditional finance works. That's how they think about it. And so you're seeing those practices brought in and you're seeing this unwind. You see the unwind of Terra Luna and what that did to Bitcoin because they had bought $10 billion. Well, mathematically, you can't factor in, you know, greed 
and and at some point that has to come out. So I think that's a very good point that you made is that you can run all these mathematical charts and pictures, but there still is some subjectivity required because if you just let algorithms take over and run, um, somebody is going to adjust theirs in a way that, yeah, that at some point causes systemic risk. And I think that's where, in my opinion, where the, the policymakers, even though I kind of push back on them, they do have it right uh, when they say, and they've said for years that, you know, with these stable coins, sure, they're great, but they cause systemic risk. With Bitcoin, sure, it might be great. Now, it encroaches on their power and control, so that's why they don't like it. But they are also not wrong that uh, it creates a level of systemic risk that we just don't have safeguards against at the moment. Um, so I think you're seeing some of that play out. Um, so when, when you look at uh, a little further down, you've got, hey, the NASDAQ is here on the right-hand side of the curve and Bitcoin is on the left-hand side of the curve. Um, we talked a little bit about these being correlated assets. Um, now, they're not 100% correlated, so it's not one. Um, but how do they end up on two sides of the curve um, when they're when they're you know trading in the same direction for a period of time is that explainable or or something you can talk about? Hmm. That's a good question. If they're trending together, yeah, in a pretty correlated manner, yeah. How does one get one to two standard deviations expensive, and the other one gets yeah. one to two standard deviations cheap? Mm. Yeah, that could be the canary in the coal mine situation, kind of. Not. But I don't want to do any predictions on what the NASDAQ is going to do. Based yeah. on these charts uh, and, the, and based on the way the math works, like what does that tell you, you know, underlying model that you have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so I think the correlation stuff is a little bit of a distraction. I, I agree with you in one sense that a lot of times there is a correlation there in a sense that whenever the NASDAQ goes down, Bitcoin goes down, and whenever the NASDAQ goes up, Bitcoin goes up. So sure, like that that exists and uh, uh, will probably persist into the future for a while, while um, Wall Street is uh, playing around with this thing. However, I, I would also suppose that Bitcoin is marching to its own drumbeat in a sense um, and I think that if you zoom out very, very far, let's say, let's go back to 2014 and compare where the Nasdaq was then to where Bitcoin was then and compare that today. And Bitcoin has vastly outperformed the Nasdaq. So the, the individual correlations there, I'm, I'm not so sure if they're important. As to why Bitcoin is down minus two standard deviations while the Nasdaq is sitting around neutral, sort of like zero there. That's interesting to think about. And I don't know if I've got the answer. It's maybe because uh, Bitcoin is a really free market compared to the traditional finance stuff and it's sniffing stuff out quicker and it's selling off sooner, right? Um, that could be that like it just uh, went a little further, uh, down, down faster, um, more, more quickly uh, because it's more free and less manipulated. So. Mm -hmm. No, I could I could make that point certainly, but I don't know the answer to that question. Like, why does it do that? The only yeah. thing I can do doing it that way is observe that it is happening, right? Bitcoin is down there, Bitcoin's really cheap. 
um, by that metric and uh, the NASDAQ isn't really and the S&P isn't really. And so I don't know what those are gonna do and where those are gonna go, short term, medium term, long term, or long term probably up. That makes sense because uh, you're taking a scientific approach. You're saying, here's the model, the hypothesis based on math, and you're, you're putting this data in there and you don't really care whether it's correlated or not. It's just, where does the, where does the data plot, regardless of my opinion or what narrative I throw at the data, I can't really bend it around those things because the data is telling me what is happening rather than me telling the data what happens. And that's a, that's a critical point in markets. Uh, we all struggle with that traditional, even in Bitcoin, uh, any kind of market, because what it, human nature is to say, this is my opinion and here's what I'm going to tell the market to do. Whereas if you take the scientific approach, as you're talking about, if you say, here is the data. And based on history and mean reversion and exponential growth and all of these things, when we factor that in, when data sits in these areas, here tends to be what happens. So you've got a probability of outcomes. And so what we all have to learn in markets is how to you know, pull our opinions away and just look at the data. That's, to me, that's what grabs me. And that, that's why I wanted to have this call because it really gives you a sense of what the data is telling you versus what you are telling the data. And by you, I just mean a market participant. So when we look at it that way, do you build floors where you expect to start participating or, or, or peaks where you say, hey, I might like this asset class, but I'm probably not going to own much of it. Do you, do you do any of that or you just strictly look at it from a math perspective? So the model is not predictive in a sense that it would give me floors. Um, I know that I used the term floor, price floor, something like that when I when I made the tweet. And I, in hindsight, that probably was a mistake. I wouldn't do it again because <laughs> we dropped below the floor. Now we, we talked about that how we're now at 23.5 and it held beautifully at 30K beforehand. Um, so I can what I can do is measure the distance from the trend adoption and then figure out if we are under that or over that and by how much, but that's really all. Mm -hmm. And I guess I can learn if Bitcoin is particularly cheap based on historic um, adoption rates or is it, if it's a little bit ahead of itself. The important thing is where's the marginal buyer in terms of where the price floor is eventually, right? And at what price are miners having to sell. And that is impossible to predict. But what I can do is I can look at what is the price today and where would the trend price be? And in, um, I looked up, like I ran the, ran the thing again and compared to past trend adoption, the trend price is now $71,300. And we are at a third of that, right? Like we mm -hmm. are at the 2023, 20, whatever, right? And by the time this year, who knows what it's, it will be. So the only thing I can really tell is that we are much, much below adoption trend in terms of price. And that screams cheap to me. And yeah. uh, so if the trend holds, and if I'm right about that, this uh, is adopted exponentially going forward. And with every uh, indication, like uh, anything I look at shows me that it is, then I want to be a buyer at these prices. Like, and, and, uh, I'm, I'm always buying anyway. I do a lot of dollar cost averaging, mm -hmm. but I've, I've stepped that up significantly uh, recently. 
and and that's what I was getting at with floors. So um, DCA, it's it's boring, but it's proven yeah. it's proven itself in traditional markets. It's proving itself in Bitcoin markets. It's, it proves itself in any market, honestly, because it takes that emotion out. So, you know, in the FOMO times when when you probably shouldn't be buying that much, people buy the most. And in these fearful times, like now and in the last few months, when people should be buying the most, they buy the least because just mentally, we for whatever reason, we we do it backwards. Uh, it's that fear and greed. Um, you know, I would agree with a lot of what you just said because the the way I look at charts from just a traditional technical standpoint, it kind of says the same things and even to the upside. Um, you know, plan B, his stock to flow worked for a little while. It really looks like it was just a multiple put on some moving average. Uh, so it broke, but, you know, he's kind of saying the same thing. Um, did a podcast with Timothy Peterson. He's got um, done a lot of work, great work on Metcalf's law, which, you know, it's different than what you're doing, but it kind of says the same thing. Um, so we've got a couple of different fundamental math based. Uh, indicators that all kind of point at the same thing. And and that was the question about the floors. Do you use that? And it sounds like you do to kind of adjust your dollar cost averaging, adjust how you put money in over time. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I agree with what you said there. It just comes to numbers here. Yeah, I don't know. Now, do you get, do you get involved? Are you just strictly looking at Bitcoin, this model and the math that, that you're doing, or have you, do you look at financial markets and the macro picture? Has the if not, has this pushed you to kind of start looking at that? Um, so yeah, in terms of Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a paradigm shift to where finance used to be. Right? It's, if if Bitcoin succeeds, uh, we will all use this as money one day and nothing nothing else, right? That will be money for the world. Usually, people usually call this the reserve asset then going forward, replacing the dollar. Um, I'm not so sure if you need a reserve asset anymore if you've got lightning. So uh, if, if this thing works, if this truly works, in the end of the day, this will just be the money. And uh, uh, that will be a beautiful world to live in probably because there will not be, markets will be free and there will not be much uh, manipulation. In terms of what I look uh, for in Bitcoin, I look mostly at uh, how the network is doing fundamentally, right? Is, is hash and difficulty going up over time? Uh, is mining securing the, the system properly or are there issues with that? How, how's, the proliferating, prolif how's the proliferation there over time? Um, I look at addresses on chain over the long term to figure out is the adoption actually happening or isn't it? It looks to me like it is. Also, the same is true for uh, UTXO sets or the, that's the unspent transaction output set, which are the individual coins in an address. You can think of it that way. Uh, it's the same thing now. It's up and to the right. So it looks to me to be um, adopted. And um, the thing that would interest me most about this actually is not what I've been doing, but I would like to see how much price insensitive daily buying is happening that goes straight into cold storage. And I haven't yet found a good answer for that. I think the best that I could find was an estimate from Corey Clipston, who is the CEO at Swan, mm -hmm. who gave a guess about that recently. And let me quote him. I put that up actually. Let me 
he says he has a 80% confidence that the number is between 500 to 2000 Bitcoin per day being bought automatically, right? So that's mm-hmm. like his best guess. And he knows that much better than I do. Um, I would, yeah, because they have a DCA feature as well. They, they do have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said he, they don't publish their own numbers. They don't they don't show right. that. And there's other platforms that do the same thing, right? You've right. got Bitteru in Australia. Uh, you've got Amber in the US too now. And like there's a bunch of, of different solutions for that. And some other exchanges do it too. But I think that's the most important one in terms of what the price is going to do. Because the, with all the speculation and all this, this, you know, running to the upside, in the end of the day, it is the people who put it away into cold storage for a long term time that make this thing go up, right? Because if there is just no supply, marginal demand has to make price go up, right? That's how it works. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's a beautiful thing that way. It's incredible how this is designed. Uh, in a sense that like the new supply coming online is ever getting smaller and smaller. So that would be something very, very interesting to look for. Um, and so I'm, I'm constantly searching for that. In terms of you asked about macro, and I guess that would be um, if that thing also works on stocks, right? Is, is that what you're asking? Or um, um, Well, just saying, you know, I didn't know if you were a market participant prior to doing, like when I say market participant, like did you were you into stocks and traditional finance and then oh, kind of mi- migrated over to Bitcoin? And so yes, one yes, of the- actually that's, that's my origin story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a, the traditional value investor before uh, jumping into the private hall and uh, the, the traditional finance crowd, they, they don't like mm-hmm. to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't. No, I've had, I had a lot of Twitter, like, you know, the, the Grahammy and MedNets and all that kind of stuff, like the super deep value stuff. Yeah. I used to, I used to do that. So, um, so that's what's interesting. So I've, uh, I've had on Yusko Foss, um, Jeff Ross, mm-hmm. Booth, uh, I'm just naming off a few. And the most interesting point, yourself included, smart dude, every one of them say they're a value investor. Mm-hmm. Kathy Wood that runs ARC, she came in our office once years ago and the whole spiel, I'm a value investor. Mm-hmm. And all of these people get labeled as kind of high growth because Bitcoin moons and and it's gone from nothing to 60K back to half of nothing, um, mm. you know, all in, in short windows. So they tend to get labeled as high growth uh, beta investors, but everybody's, and I think that's what separates, you know, a lot of you guys from the rest is that you bring that uh, Warren Buffett, deep value, Graham Dodd, views and so instead of just ca- getting caught up in price you look at the fundamentals what what is the yeah. data telling you what is the network track traffic telling you what are all these key pieces that if they don't exist it's just a ponzi scheme right absolutely so look at bill miller too right like uh, mm-hmm. an incredible investor very 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 good returns for a long period of time and uh, he's got a huge position in bitcoin and um, yeah, I just started out in the traditional markets with the deep value net net stuff because it was easy to quantify. That that's what drew me to it back then. Um, as I said, I like looking at numbers and uh, net nets. They just lent themselves to that a lot. I over time gave that a twist to do uh, net nets only if I like the business, right? Not just any net nets because you can find really dodgy stuff there. That's like perennial net nets that never do anything at all. 
Um, but you know, like what, what I like particularly, or you used to like, I still like them, but um, is, is what I call volatility net nets, not a, the ones that just appear after you had a big drawdown. Like let's say you go 20, 30% down in stocks, like the net nets that appeared then, they were usually trading close to net asset value beforehand. And it, they dip down to the magic two thirds number that Graham wrote about. And then a year later, you just have sensational returns there. Um, I, I used to like those, I still like them, but uh, I found like these days I view everything in terms of opportunity cost. What if this would be Satoshi's instead in cold storage, right? And mm -hmm. um, every time I do that calculation, I can't justify uh, owning the alternative anymore. I mean, mm -hmm. I could be wrong about the uh, whole Bitcoin thing. That that is the big risk that I'm I'm having here. Like, I'm like the the, the what, what is the guy that who said he's irresponsibly long? Um, <laughs> I maybe not mention him here. Now he turned out to be a bit of a scammer. But uh, anyway, <laughs> that that uh, in terms of. Uh, risk mitigation, just doing that, that might be a bad idea if it goes south and I'm wrong about it, but I just don't see it. You know, I've, I've, I've kicked the tires on this thing and yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't see how, how it couldn't happen. And anymore. to combat that, we have to give assets time to work. And that's one of the more important parts of investing is you can't get irresponsibly long into anything because if you do, your odds of being wrong where it's painful are high. So, yeah. and this is back to, does Bitcoin need to take over the world and the dollar go to zero? No, but the financial system as it stands is seeking another collateral asset to help the, the you know, the Ferris wheel go around because it's not. And uh, so if you look historically, each step of the way, we've added a new collateral asset. And that's what's important about Bitcoin. It's adding a new collateral asset to sop up some of this liquidity issues that we have. And so um, I think you don't need the dollar or all fiats to go to zero. A lot of them will because there's just no point. And but what we need is a parallel network that that brings in opportunity to those parts of the world that are you know, having issues because they're stuck on a dollar network, which doesn't it, it's not advantageous to them. And so, you know, when you put all those things together, you want to own a handful of assets that do different things in different environments so that from a prob probability standpoint, you're not wiped out. And then mm -hmm. from a, you know, macro picture of the monetary network, we just need more things to help that network operate because right now it's a, a lot of log jams. Yeah, I guess it depends on the time frame now. If you view the dollar is going to zero, because arguably it has, right? Mm -hmm. um, oh, it has. It's down 99% over its yeah, life. Right. So that's as close to zero as you can get. And you can do that infinite times, right? So, questions will anybody use it anymore? And I'm not so sure if the dollar will still be a thing 20 years down the road or. Yeah, because not Bitcoin has the properties that it has of being a sound money and uh, the scaling layers are being built. So I just don't see why eventually once market penetration is high, let's say we're moving out of this exponential stage and uh, we're moving into the laggard phase, what would you use the dollar for at that stage anymore, right? Like if you mm -hmm. could just store your value in Satoshi's. No? By, that, by that time, you've got a long track record too, right? Like uh, mm -hmm. that's probably 
three decades then. Uh, let's say that happens within 20 years, right? Like 20 years yeah. from now. Uh, Bitcoin has a 30-year history. It's, it's still around and it's much, much bigger there. And uh, even the even Peter Schiff has to get some. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like at that stage, what would you use the dollar for anymore? I don't know. But that's speculation at this point, in this point in time, right? So we don't know if it's going to go there or not. And yeah, it's speculation. And that's what I get because the dollar network is the largest monetary network on the earth. I mean, you can go from one side of the earth to the other. And if you have dollars, you can buy things. But from a collateral perspective, from a leverage perspective, it's breaking down. Bitcoin helps solve some of that. And I mean, I think mm -hmm. the big fundamental signs, if you go back to being a value investor, I was looking at yesterday, I saw a, a brief headline that, you know, sure, Terra blew up, DeFi, a lot of scams, but there are functions in that that will help uh, bridge this Bitcoin network to traditional finance to keep this flow of economic activity going around. And so JP Morgan is built out, of, you know, they're going to do anything that will allow them to, you know, uh, reap fees and, and, and profit from it. But they've realized that, hey, what we're seeing in these algorithmic stable coins and these pools of capital and stable coins and other parts of Bitcoin networks and DeFi networks is that we can take traditional assets, put them in there, create this pool, and then generate yield return access to capital in ways that we can't in the traditional network because it's siloed in the ways that we can't because in the tr traditional network, everyday Joes like you and me, that come up with great financial ideas, can't take those to market. And so through this open source, which is essentially, we're just open sourcing money and open sourcing value creation through transfer and integration of money. Um, it allows us a new tool set. So I think that's, pie in the sky 10 years out 30 years out when we look back and like, wow these were key moments um in this this kind of five ten year window you go backwards and then into the next four or five years mm. well i appreciate you coming on yogi and and talking about uh these charts i think it's phenomenal work uh loved hearing your uh, standpoint is where can listeners if they have interest where can they find you online or, or resources if you have any that you would point them to to learn more mm -hmm. so two places i've got um, the twitter of course that's like proof of yogi so that's proof of j-o-g-i and then i've also made a little website uh, bitcoin is the better money.com that has uh, a couple charts there for, uh, to help people uh, understand what it's all about like buy and hold returns for instance that's awesome uh just pulled up the website um you know definitely appreciate your work keep at it and uh thanks for coming on to talk to everyone today thank you thank you for having me mm -hmm.